Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, we've been in this series since last fall that we've entitled Strangers in a Strange Land, looking verse by verse at the book of 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, you can grab a pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 1016. Uh, we find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And as you turn there, I'm going to ask you once again stand uh, out of reverence for God's word. And uh, let's look at this passage together this morning. The word of the Lord as revealed by the Holy Spirit to our friend and uh, a great model, Apostle Peter, says the following. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Father God, we come before you. We thank you for the gift of music the ministry of voice. Father, I thank you for uh, these almost 50 young people who have dedicated their lives to uh, the use of music, who are looking forward to using that music in ministries and, and opportunities in the days to come. Lord, I pray that you would bless them and you would keep them, watch over them. Lord, protect them as they travel, as they continue to minister your word uh, to an ever-growing group of people. Lord, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for what this church means to my family and I. And Lord, I'm thankful for the fellowship of the saints. I'm thankful that, uh, Lord, we can come around uh, each other and show the love of Christ to one another. I'm thankful, Lord, that in a world that's many times difficult to live in, that we have a home here where we can rejoice, and we can sing, and we can study the life and the words of Jesus, that he has taught us the way to live the abundant life that he gives. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your messenger this morning. Father, I pray that you would speak through me in a powerful way. Lord, I pray that my friends here will listen and hear what your word has to say and then live in light of it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. As we've known for some time in the book of First Peter, we come once again to a place where I want to reiterate to you that Peter has a message for us this morning. Whether young or old, male or female, rich or poor, been a Christian for a long time or a Christian just from yesterday, God has a word for you this morning. A word that will uh, direct us in the way that we ought to live. Now Peter is going to share this morning a reminder and that reminder is that you and I are at war we're not at war per se with Al-Qaeda in the area of Afghanistan and Iraq 
We're not at war, even if it's a war of words right now, and let's pray that it stays that way with the country of North Korea. But the Bible says that we are at war, and the pundits and the TV commentators and the sociologists tell us that this is a war not of weapons, of gunfire and ammunition, but it is a war of cultures. It's a culture war. We hear this through the pundits. We hear this through uh, the TV commentaries. Since uh, for some time now, the United States has been at odds with one another over cultural and, if you will, truth issues. And what we see happening in our world today is that this culture war, as defined in the dictionary, is a uh, conflict within a society due to the different ideas, philosophies, beliefs, and behaviors. In short, this culture war is a clash of worldviews. No doubt you have felt this clash even in the last couple weeks as new definitions seem to be arising in the way that we live life. You're finding out that your friends and your coworkers see life very differently than you do. You're starting to feel a little bit more strange in this strange land. Well, Peter has a word for us this morning. Peter has something to share with us as to how we are to win this culture war and what our strategy should be like in engaging a society in crisis. Now, to be able to understand that, we have to understand a couple things of how we approach this warfare. How do we engage with it right now? It seems that as we look at our world today, we as Christians more and more find ourselves on the outskirts of public opinion and human thought. For many of us, we are being titled with new labels that were left for the most hateful of people because we hold to views that seemingly have been around since the beginning of human civilization. And we find ourselves wondering if the golden age of being a Christian in America may be over. So how are we to respond? Well, there are four approaches that you can have as a Christian in this world. And the first one that I want you to look at, and just write this down as you follow along in the bulletin insert, the first approach you can have is what I call a passive approach. Really, it's no approach at all. It's that you're just going to go along with the uh, direction of the world. And some of you find yourself there this morning. Yes, you're here, but as you leave this place, you just go in the same direction as the rest of the world does, doing what the world does, watching the entertainment that the world offers, living the life and pursuing the desires that the world has to offer and you do so and the only difference between you and the world is that you label yourself as a Christian but here's the thing you don't tell anybody about it you see the problem with the passive approach number one is is that if you ever are given an opportunity to share your faith if you're ever given an opportunity to stand and proclaim the goodness of Christ you're gonna confuse a whole lot of people because you're going to talk about being a stranger in a strange land. You're going to talk about things of Christ that is going to be strange to people. And people are going to say, wait a minute. You say this is strange, but you live just as I do. 
Your language is just like mine. We look at the same things. We pursue the same things. Our desires are the same. And you're talking about the strange life in Christ. It doesn't make sense. We will confuse people when we are passive. Number two, we destroy. We destroy any opportunity to show the world that we are different in Christ. So that's not the way to go. The second approach that we have, and this is a popular one, is the political approach. How do we change our culture? How do we win back our country? Well, what we do is we be, get behind a candidate who says all the right things, who believes the way we do, and we believe through that man or through that p platform or that political action committee, then things will change. That things will be different. That if we can just win Congress and we can just win our state legislatures, then things will really take place. Well, let me tell you, in the last 50 years when this culture war began to really take place, we've had Republican majorities and we've had Democratic majorities. And I will tell you, none of them have helped all that much either side of the aisle. And that's why the Bible is so clear that our job is not to be political, but to be pure. It is not to pursue candidates, but to pursue Christ. If you struggle with this approach in the sense that you see that, that this is the way to change, and you know the way you know this, are you listening to the pundits on AM radio and cable more than you are the precepts of God? Are you more concerned about what Rush Limbaugh says than you are concerned about what the Apostle Peter says? Well, then you have approached this culture warfare with a political mindset. And if you need help with that, I'll, I'll share with you a wonderful book by Erwin Lutzer that is entitled, Why the Cross Can Do What Politics Can't. The, the third view is the, what I call the polemic view. And polemic is a word, it's a Greek word, that comes from uh, approaching life in a warlike fashion. And some of us are just, we're just fed up. We're tired of all of the debauchery, all of the sin. And what has happened is, is we've grown angry and we've grown bitter. And, and in essence, what we are saying is to hell with the world. We don't care anymore. I don't care what they do because at the end of the time, I know they're going to burn in hell and we'll just leave it at that. And what you begin to do is you begin to start hating people instead of loving the people and hating the sin. And some of you right now, maybe you're not announcing it to your people in the pew next to you, but deep down inside, you just can't wait until the world gets what's coming to them. That's not the view we should have either. The view that we should have and what Peter seems to lay out before us this morning is what I would like to call a purposeful approach. And that is that we live with an agenda, with a strategy that is focused in on Christ, on what he has done. And as a result of that, we go out into this world as aliens and strangers in this place. And we reach the world for the cause of Christ so that they may see the gospel in and through us. And so that we may boldly proclaim him who has called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. Well, what does this purposeful approach look like? It involves adopting, and we're going to address these three things, adopting a new attitude, redeeming our associations, and recognizing that judgment is approaching. We'll hit each of these as quickly as I can this morning. So notice with me this morning, our first point is that we need to adopt a new attitude. 
Notice in our text this morning that Peter begins, and, and this is always a problem with the chapter breaks. Uh, for those that are maybe newer to the Bible and Christianity, there were no chapter breaks in the original writings. It, it just went. Those chapter breaks are for us so that I can say, hey, now turn to chapter 4 of 1 Peter. It breaks it up. But sometimes those chapter breaks aren't always in the best spot. And this is one of them because Peter is halfway through a thought. And what he begins with in verse 1 of chapter 4 is what we call a henna clause or a henna statement. And what that means is it's a connecting clause that connects what has been said prior uh, to this clause to what's going to come after it. And so what we say, and you learn this in English, when you see the word therefore, you ask the question, what is it therefore? And so we need to ask the question, why is this therefore there? Well, what we are going to learn is that Peter is telling us we have an, ad an adopting of a new mindset to take place. Well, where is that ad adopted mindset going to come from? It's going to come from Christ. Notice verses 18 through 22. We see, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, it goes on and it says at the end of verse 21, all of this was through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, and he has angels, authorities, and powers all being subjected to him. Therefore, in light of, because of, as a result of, whatever phrase you want to put in there, that's what Peter is saying when he says therefore. Because Christ has suffered, you and I are called to suffer. But we're not just to suffer for suffering's sake. Because Christ suffered and brought many to God through his suffering, we too are called to suffer at times and as a result to bring many to God. We see that Christ suffered so that he might bring glory to God. And then through our suffering, through our ailments, through our struggles in a difficult world, you and I have the opportunity as Christ did to bring greater glory to God. As a result of Christ's suffering, but it's not that he just suffered. Notice, as Christ suffered, he also was raised and victorious. And because he was raised and victorious, you and I, amidst our suffering, can recognize that Christ is victorious. And because he's victorious, you and I can be as well. And because you and I can be victorious, we can go out into the world and we can make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation and not worry what man is going to do against us. Not wonder what struggle or strife may take us down because we are reminded by Peter's friend Paul who says you and I are more than conquerors in Christ. And because we're more than conquerors, Peter has a word for us. We've got to adopt an attitude. Notice this attitude begins with dying to our sinful desires. Notice the text. He says, I want you to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There's the, the attitude. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What takes place in the Christian's life when we bow the knee to Jesus, and as Peter says, as we enter into the waters of baptism, we identify with the suffering of Christ. We say, Christ, you suffered, you died on my behalf, and now as a result of that suffering, as I identify with it, I'm going to start saying no to some things. 
I'm going to put to death some things. And here's the thing. As suffering takes place in our life, temptation becomes really small. When we're dealing with issues and struggles, the alluring of the world gets a, bit, a little bit smaller. And so when you find yourself suffering because of a medical issue or because of a financial struggle or because of some spiritual warfare going on in your life, recognize that amidst suffering, temptation is a little bit easier to bear because the last thing you're thinking about per se is, what about me? What needs do I have? And so Peter says, die to these sinful desires. Now I'm glad and I'm thankful that Peter doesn't just say this and say, well, this is easy, guys, come on. I mean, we all know that sin is bad and that we shouldn't do bad things. So therefore, because sin is bad and we don't want to do bad things, then get it in your thick skulls, people, that you shouldn't sin. But notice that's not the picture that Peter lays forth. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says that we are not to live the rest of our days in the flesh for human passions. That word passions there is the Greek word epithumia. It literally is a compound word. And this compound word speaks of the desires you have towards something. And so literally it's desires toward or passions toward. And so when you are passionate, you're always passionate about something. There's always something that those appetites and desires are going to move you to. When Peter uses this word epithumia, he speaks of passions that are incredibly powerful. And so when he says this word passions, what he's saying to us, Village Bible Church, is sin is attractive. Sin is powerful. Sin is something that we need to be ready to fight against. But notice, he says, that when we have suffered with Christ, we will cease to sin. Now, we know that what Peter isn't saying is that when we come to Christ, all of a sudden, we no longer sin. And if you've been able to do that, please talk to me because something's wrong. You should be in glory because we know we won't be out of the presence of sin until we reach glory. But sin is something we have to deal with. And what he says is, is that it needs to be put to death. What he says is, notice he says, for the time that passes, that in the past, suffices. What Peter is saying is enough is enough. Now, I don't, I don't usually say this. I'm a pretty long-suffering individual. Uh, but my wife and I were heading out on a date this last Friday, and Amanda was having a bad hair day. Don't tell her I told you this. And she was having a bad hair day. And she couldn't figure out how she wanted her. Was it gonna, hair going to be down? Was it going to be up and down? And she kept coming out and saying, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And finally, I just said, enough is enough. You're beautiful. Let's go. And she said, well, you just don't know me then. There's a time in our lives where we have to say enough is enough. And one of the things that we have to say enough is enough to is the former way we used to live is the way that we used to pursue things now you say Tim I was I came to know Christ at a young age and and I, I don't know anything else but my relationship with Christ remember what Peter is talking to is a group of people who have come to know Christ and who now are having to say no to some things that just a couple weeks beforehand they were saying yes to 
And Peter's saying, you've lived that way long enough. Now you say, well, I've been walking with Jesus for as long as I can remember. Recognize that there's some grace there, that not only does God rescue you from your life of sin, but God also keeps you from a life of sin as well. And so I'm thankful for a family that loved the Lord and that showed me the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ from a young age, how I learned from infancy the power of Scripture. Because I can tell you, I look back, and there's no way I would have been kept from all that sin if I was left to my own. And so Peter is saying to this group of people who had found themselves sinning, you can't do it anymore. You've got to die to sin. It's got to be done with. Notice Warren Wearsby says the following with regards to these passions. He says, the fundamental desires that Peter is speaking of are like the steam in the boiler that makes machinery go. You turn off the steam, you've got no power. Well, you can't do that. These passions are a part of who we are. We can't get rid of them, he says, so you've got to deal with it. So he says, you turn off the power, it's turn off the steam, you have no power. You let the steam go its own way, and it will destroy you. It'll explode. He says the secret is that you have to put it under the control of Christ. And some of us right now are allowing our sin to wreak havoc in our lives, and there is destruction coming along the way unless we get ourselves under control. So notice it begins by putting death to sin. Number two, and we'll keep moving here, it involves chasing after God's commands. Notice he says, but... He says there, okay, you no longer can live for the human passions, but for the will of God. And so it's not that you just stop doing something. You stop what you're doing, pursuing the flesh, and you pursue the will of God. When I was younger, I thought the will of God was some esoteric or transcendental movement in my spirit. That I would somehow find God's will uh, in in the muckety-muck of this world that God would kind of just shine a light on me and he would tell me what to do. And I struggled with that because I never got a light shined on me and therefore I didn't know what God's will was. So I picked up some books and, and they weren't all that helpful with regards to it until one of my mentors said to me, God's will is found in God's word. Hmm. You wonder what God's will is for your life? Look to the word. You want to know how God wants you to live? Look to his word. God's word is what makes us not only wise to salvation, but gives us everything that we need for a good life and godliness. And so if you're wondering what God's will is, then chase after his commands. How does a man uh, walk in the ways of the Lord? Well, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the seat of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. But day and night he meditates on on the law of the Lord, and he does what it says. And so if you want to know what God's will is for your life, start meditating on the Word of God and allowing it to transform your life. And so Peter says, stop going that way and start pursuing the Word of God. Next we need to look at that when we begin to do this, as we begin to do this, something is going to happen. It's what I'd like to say is we're going to start freaking out our friends and family. Notice in verse 4, Peter says... He says that with respect to this, when you no longer are doing what the Gentiles do in verse 3, verse 4 tells us with respect to this, they are surprised. The word there literally means they are dumbfounded. How in the world can you go from having uh, the blast at the party 
to being the center of attention in that party, doing what we all are doing, how can you go from that to now abstaining from it? That's craziness. How can you, when, when the alcohol is flowing, say no thanks when everybody's saying let's have a whole lot more? How can you say no to the things that make the flesh feel so much pleasure? How can you say no when everybody else is saying let's get into this thing? How in the world can you do that? Something is wrong with you. You used to do that and now you're saying no. They're going to be dumbfounded. One translation says they will think it strange of you. The idea here is that the unbeliever is not going to understand the change that has been made by Christ. And so what will happen? What are they going to do? You go to the party and you hang out. And when things start getting to a place of sinfulness and the activities start moving away from uh, being uh, a time of, of unbelievers gathering together to a time of debauchery, and you say, you know what, it's time for me to go. I can't be here any longer. You know what they'll do to you? They're going to give you an award. They're going to say, wow, what a great guy. Tim has found Jesus. This is awesome. Let's gather together. Tim, share with us about Jesus. That's what they're going to do, right? That's what, what Peter says. No, I'm sorry. That's not what Peter says. He says you need to start prepping for persecution. He goes on and he says, hey, they're going to be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what will they do? They will malign you. They will malign you. That word uh, malign is they will verbally slander you. Literally, they will injure your reputation. And, and this is what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 2, 12, when he says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles, speaking of the world, keep your conduct among the world honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they malign you, when they injure your reputation, they might see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. And so here we see that when we pursue Christ instead of sin, people are going to struggle with it. And they're going to cause you to have to suffer for doing what is right. Now that moves us to the second point, and that is that we have to redeem our associations. What is a Christian to do? Where is a Christian to go? Now follow my thinking here. Because I think this is what Peter is getting at, and I will try to address this. And this will be, in some ways, a bit of an affront to you, uh, for some of you in this place. And that is your response is, well, if the world's going to treat me that way, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get out of the world. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to isolate myself from sinful people. Because the sinners are bad, and because even if I do right in their midst, they're going to be angry with me and malign me, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to remove myself from the world as much as humanly possible. And so we become an evangelical Amish. And what we do is we separate ourselves from all of the encumbrances of the world. And the reason why we do it is because it's so much easier for us not to have to suffer for, what is, for doing what is good. And it's easier for us to get into our holy huddles at church and engage the world as minimally as possible, all the while getting all that we need. One of my concerns here at Village Bible Church, especially here at the Sugar Grove campus, is that our church would grow so big that we would never have to go out of the, into the world to get any of our relationship needs. 
that every program would take care of, that everything we would need, we would have a Christian answer to everything that the world offers. And so you no longer have to be engaged in your communities. You no longer have to engage with your neighbors. You no longer have to do anything because everything you need is here at Village Bible Church. God forbid that ever becomes the day here, that we create a country club of events and programs and opportunities that keeps us from reaching the lost. And yet some of you find yourself isolated from the world that God has called you to change. So what are we to do? Notice that when Jesus was here on earth, what he was nailed with as an accusation over and over again was not that he was engaged in sin, but that he associated with sinners. The title that Jesus got from the Pharisees was he was a friend of of sinners well let's ask the question this morning village bible church are you a friend of sinners when was the last time you spent time with a sinful person and i don't mean your spouse when was the last time you invited that sinner of a neighbor that you have but tim you don't know they drink beer and smoke cigarettes and watch tv well god forbid that's what sinners do well, they use some bad language. Well, that's what sinners do. And what we need to be careful with is we don't isolate ourselves from it. Now, you say, Tim, doesn't bad company corrupt good character? Yep, it does. Remember, that's a proverb, not a promise, though. It's a good saying. It's got some real truth to it. Doesn't mean it's universal. And we'll get to that in a moment. But notice what I think Peter is saying is it's not our association with sinful people. We need to be engaged. Jesus engaged with the prostitute and the tax collector, and he was always accused of associating with the lowly, and we need to be, listen to me, we need to be accused of hanging out with some of the bad people as well. But what will my Christian friends say? Well, if they say that you shouldn't be hanging out with those people in those places, then what they have done is taken the part of the Pharisee in your local passion play. Because that's what, that's what Jesus had coming at him from the Pharisees. Now, what I need to be careful here because, Tim, are you saying that I just go about and do this passive engagement? No, it's not the passive approach. Notice, it is not isolation from sinful people. We know where to reach the lost. It is participation from sinful practices. Notice what Peter says is he does, he separates the people from their sin. He says here, and, and I'll, I'll unfold this here in a moment, but notice he says the time has passed for doing what the Gentiles do. Notice he doesn't say, for the time has surpassed for being with the Gentiles. He says it is time has enough is enough that you don't do what they do anymore. And so what do they do? Notice it is the sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The idea there is all types of sensuality, all types of debauchery, and all types of lawless activity. What that means is, hey, let's go and break some stuff. And it's not even just God's commands, but it's just the civil commands. Let's just go raise a ruckus. Peter says you can't do that anymore. But he doesn't say, stop being with them. Just don't do what they are doing. Don't rush in headlong into their flood of debauchery. 
Now notice what will take place. As we do this, we will live what Peter saw in Jesus, and that is we will engage with broken people. Is it dangerous work? You bet. Could you fall to sin as a result of it? Yep. Could you suffer because you go to the party? You heard me right. You go to the party, and the party starts getting out of hand where you no longer can stay at that party. I, I know of a, a couple in our, in our uh, church that, that went. They've been reaching out to this lost uh, family, and they invited them to a house party. And, and it was started out great, and, and, and they were enjoying themselves. But at some point, everything changed, and the, the event got a lot more racier than it needed to be. And they knew it was time to go. So what I'm not saying is you don't go to the party. What I'm saying is, is be aware, be discerning of what's happening in the party. And when things start to get out of hand, you need to stop and say, I can no longer be here. I need to go. And why do we do that? Because if we don't, please hear me, if we don't, there can be no transformation of the Spirit's power. And what I mean by that is Peter is writing to a group of people who have just come to know Jesus. They've come and they become saved. And Peter says, you can't live like your friends used to live. You can't do those things anymore. But herein lies the question, how in the world did those sinful people come to know Jesus? How in the world did they hear of the gospel if they were involved in all that sensuality and all of that raucousness and, and all of those pursuits and the things that Gentiles do? Someone had to share the gospel with them. And what we have done is, because we have our own sub-Christian culture, is we say, we don't need you, and so we're not going to spend any time with you because you have no uh, real help to me. All you are is a threat to me because of the things you do, and so I want to stay pure, so I'll stay away from you. I'll keep my kids away from your kids. And what we do is we isolate ourselves from the world. And what we're forgetting is the reason why Peter's able to write this letter is someone went to the broken. Someone went to the sinful. Someone went to the dirty and shared Jesus Christ with them. And we need to do that. Is it dangerous? Yep. And that's why we need to recognize something. The final thing I want you to notice here, and I'll try to bring this all together. So we have participation. I got ahead of myself. What about transformation through the Spirit's power? The only way we're going to save people, how will they know if they've not heard? And how will they hear if we don't go to them? How beautiful are the feet that bring good news? Jesus left heaven and brought the good news to us, and we need to do likewise. Notice the reason why we do it is because judgment is fast approaching. Notice in verse 5 he says, he fast forwards and he says, but they will give an account. They malign you, they mock you, they do all these things. Don't worry about it because they're going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and dead. Circle that word if you do in your Bibles. That word ready means it could happen at any time. Ready means that even though you're in the minority, that it could come without warning. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And some of you get this idea where you start rubbing your hands together and you start with that cynical and sinister laugh. <laughs> They're going to get what they deserve. My younger brother, God bless him, my younger brother used to love watching me get spankings. And he, with his little, God bless him, he's a wonderful man walking with God. There was a deviousness to him. Yeah, Dad, give him another. Yeah, he deserves it. And some of you right now are looking at the world 
And you're pointing at the world and say, you just wait till you get what you deserve. That's not what Peter's saying. What Peter is saying is, hey, judgment is fast approaching. And so Christian, what are you called to do? And the Christian is called to live defensively. Notice in verse 1, here's what he says, arm yourself. How do you live as a stranger in a strange land? How do you engage in the culture without you yourself being defiled? How do you go to the party and make sure that you don't fall to sin? You arm yourself. You arm yourself. That word there, arm yourself, is a forceful Greek word. It was a military word that was used to uh, be a call by the commanding officers to his soldiers. The idea was, is get your battle gear on, not your light armor, put the heavy stuff on, because there's a battle raging there. And when you put on your armor, I want you to go into enemy territory, and I want you to be on a heightened state of alert, because I'm going to call you to go reach those who maybe you even walked with in your times as you walked with the Gentiles. But you're going to have to be protected. The schemes of the devil are powerful. You're going to have to resist him. You're going to have to be ready for the impulses of your flesh. And there's discernment there. Please understand that. That if you're struggling with a particular sin, the last thing you want to do is go into the den of the, of the lions uh, just to prove a point. But what Jesus is saying is, uh, Peter's saying is, arm yourself so that you can be strong enough to endure some of the maligning and some of the issues that are going to come along. It's, going to be, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be dangerous. And so notice what he says. He uses this phrase, arm yourself, in the aorist imperative in the Greek language. And what that means is it is to be done with a great sense of urgency. Why? Because God's coming. And before long, it will be too late. And they need to hear of Jesus. So how do you engage a crowd of sinners when you yourself are walking with God? You arm yourself. How do you live for Christ in your workplace? You arm yourself. How are you the only Christian in a public school? You arm yourself. How are you the only Christian family in a neighborhood going to change culture? You arm yourself. And yet what we are told in the original language that this arming is done in a passive voice, which means you and I have to make a decision to do it each and every day. How are we going to change the culture? We arm ourselves knowing that the day is coming where it will be too late. And so we're motivated to reach our lost friends and family and even acquaintances by going to them and ministering to them in their time of need. Number two, we pray fervently. And we know this. But we go into this world prayerful. We wake up every morning and say, Lord, I want to be a light in this world. I want to share the love of Christ. Lord, make me such an attractive Christian that people will ask why I have the hope that I have. Lord Jesus, work in the lives of people who don't know about you, who don't know the way of salvation. Lord Jesus, don't make me a, a one who judges, one who points my finger at the world, but let me be reminded that I am a sinner who got grace and mercy from you. And so that I will show that grace and mercy in my hour of need. Lord, give me connections. I've been isolated from this world, Lord, and it's scary out there. So give me the Spirit's power so that I can go and be of a sound mind to take on the world around me. Thirdly, it means serve faithfully. I don't mean here in the church. What Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that you serve faithfully in all aspects of your life. 
That as a Christian, you're the best employee that you can be. That as a Christian, you're the best citizen that you can be. That the, best, that, the, uh, that the neighbor you are is the best neighbor you can be and the best spouse that you can be. That you are the best person that you can be in this world. Why? So that in verse 12 of chapter 2, that you keep your conduct among them so honorable that even when they try to accuse you of doing wrong, they can't because you're such a, a good person. And I don't mean good in the sense of you know, good and, and holy, that they just see you as that, but they see that there's something different about you. But what happens when you're at the party, Tim? What happens when you're in the midst where, where the jokes are going south and they're going fast? What do you do? You decline graciously. You decline graciously because First Peter 3, 9 and 10 tells us, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this is what you were called to, that you may obtain a blessing. So whoever desires to live a, law, a love of, who desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. They start asking you to do some things you know you're not to do. I can't do it. I can't be a part of it. It's wrong. And I gotta go. But why do you have to go, Tim? The final point is that you have to proclaim boldly. Don't just abstain for abstention purposes. Abstain because you say, I once lived in darkness as well. I know what it's like to long for these things. I know how you feel. I know what it's like to pursue these things. I was with you. I was there. But now I've found Christ. And he's brought me out of darkness, and he's brought me into his wonderful light. And so let me tell you, you don't have to live this anyway, this way anymore. I love you. I care about you. I'm concerned for you. And I love you enough to still associate with you, but I will not participate with you in these acts because I love Jesus, and Jesus loves me. Some of us need to get involved in a community where all there is are threats and all there is are complications to the Christian life. But I will tell you that when you do this right and you pray yourself up and you serve faithfully in the community and you decline graciously when things come that you cannot do, that it is then that brothers and sisters will be able to do what verse 11 of chapter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Why? Because we're the chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people of his own possession that we can proclaim those excellencies. Are you willing to reach the lost? Or are you content in sitting in your bubble of isolation, living the Christian life all the while the world heads to hell? on the road that is broad and wide. My prayer is that we as a church would be a people who would be willing to go and reach the lost by arming ourselves with the same attitude as Christ and to reach him for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we've gone over today, but Lord, that's okay because you've had a word for us this morning. And so Lord, we have worshiped you in song. We've worshiped you in praise. 
But no, Lord, we pray that we can worship you in our actions and in our practices. So, Lord, it's been easy to preach. My goodness, Lord, it is so easy to preach a life of holiness amidst a world of sin in a, in a room full of Christians. But now, Lord, we're going to leave this place, and we're going to go into a workplace tomorrow, into a school tomorrow. We're going to go into our neighborhoods today where we are the only Christian that we know of. And, Lord, I pray that in that moment that, that the words of 1 Peter will come alive to us and radically change our lives. Lord, I pray that we would just find one person, one person who needs to hear the gospel. And Lord, we would be willing to arm ourselves so that we can go on the offensive and reach out, no matter their issues and their struggles and their depravity, Lord, that we would go to them and we would reach out and share the love of Christ so that they might see you in all that we do. So Lord, empower us by your spirit. We need your spirit because it is not by flesh nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts that we will win this battle. And Lord, we are reminded that you are the victor and that you are the one who has brought us the victory. Let us lead, lead and live from that place of victory instead of the place of defeat. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.